Pray with me, please. Father, thank you, Lord, that I'm back. And thank you, Father, that your church is yours and not the property of one person or any group of people. That it's, it's your lampstand, Father. You have lit the lamp and you control it. And I praise you, Lord, that you've given us the privilege to be a small part of what you choose to do in the body of Christ. And this morning, Lord, we're gathered again, myself included, and the family in Oak Hill, uh, ready to study your word. And, uh, Father, we come to your word every time with an expectation that there's something new here. And not because the, the truth changes or that you change, but, Father, we change. We grow in our understanding, our lives, circumstances change, and each time, Father, you're able to speak into our lives in a unique way based on what you have placed in your word centuries ago. And it's that power of the word, Father, that amazes us and reminds us that it is a supernatural word and not merely the thoughts of men. And, Father, we'll wrestle with things this morning and in the weeks to come in this, in this letter, things that you've placed here for us to wrestle and, and grow strong in. I thank, thank you, Lord, for that opportunity. But in all these things, Father, we ask for guidance to the truth and uh, clarity. And I pray, Father, you'd give that to us through the words you cho- uh, give me to speak this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I thought as I go back into this chapter, it's going to have to have a little bit of introduction because I barely remembered where we were after four weeks, and I'm pretty sure no one else does. So I want to take a moment and remind you that this two-chapter set of three and four are on a single point, and he's building to that point. And in the beginning of chapter three, he introduced three concepts which are elementary to his main point. The first of those we studied last time I was here, and that was this concept of the wilderness wanderings of Israel. He raises the name Moses specifically, and he says Moses was a servant over God's house, which was a reference to Israel back in the day when they wandered. Now, we know Moses is the man who led Israel out of Egypt. We know him as the man who gave them the covenant of law that God delivered. And, of course, he was the one who was supposed to lead them into the promised land, though that did not happen in his under his watch. And the writer expects us. To remember all those aspects of Moses's ministry when he raises the name Moses. Then the second concept that he's going to raise or has raised is this idea of Christ also having a house, one that's superior to Moses's. Just as Jesus is superior to angels, he is also the superior leader over God's people. And the house that Jesus built includes Moses, who was merely a servant in that house. That was the second concept. And now the third concept. The third concept he defined right at the end of the last time I taught, that was that verse that talked about perseverance or steadfastness in our faith. And that being a test of our confession of faith. The writer uses a picture to describe this in the form of this house. He says we are qualified to be a part of God's house if we have held fast our confession firm until the end. And that word end refers to the end of our life. So last time when we looked at this, we noted that the writer here is not defining a means to salvation, that being holding fast. He's not saying that salvation comes from the work of holding fast. He's defining what salvation is. He's saying that the definition of salvation is that all true believers will be those who hold fast. True believers are the ones who hold fast their confession to the end. That's not how they became a true believer. It is simply the reflection of. Of true salvation. Now, why has the writer raised these three points? He's raised the the issue of Moses, the issue of Christ in a house, and he's raised this issue of perseverance. Why? 
Well, to understand that, we have to read into the rest of chapter 3 and into chapter 4. He is now ready to begin using those concepts to make his larger point. And we begin this morning in chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. The writer says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they do not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, as we heard from the reading earlier this morning, this writer is quoting from Psalms 95, specifically verses 7 through 11. This is a psalm that retells the the story of what happened to Israel in the desert. And that story is first told in Numbers, in Numbers 13 and 14. And what the writer in Psalms is doing, and this writer, of course, in Hebrews is quoting Psalms for this reason. The writer in Psalms was invoking this powerful memory within Israel. In Israel's history, there was few moments more sobering, more sad than the memory of that rebellion in Numbers 13 and 14. It was that rebellion in Numbers 13 that set Israel on the course of wandering for 40 years in the desert. It's a low point in their history, a point they're none too proud of. As a nation of people. And as the psalmist recounts it, the generation of Israel, he says, tested the Lord a total of 10 times during their early travels in the desert. And you go back and read this in Exodus and into early the early chapters of Numbers, where they would stop at various points in their wandering and they would question the Lord's faithfulness and his goodness. They accuse God of leading them in the desert only to kill them by the Egyptians who have hemmed them into the wilderness or at other points to say, you've only led us here to die of hunger or to die of thirst. Then when they did get food, they complained about the manna and then they eventually worshiped the golden calf. And then they rebelled at other points against Moses's leadership, which God had appointed over them repeatedly in all of those things. They're testing the Lord. And when they say test in this context, when the Bible says test, think of it like this. They're testing his patience. They're testing his patience at their rebellion at their disobedience. They're almost daring him to act against them for their disobedience. And then it, it reaches a breaking point. The, the straw that breaks the proverbial camel's back happens in Numbers 13 when God says, this is now the 10th time, and the word, or the number 10 in Scripture is a number that stands for testimony. They've made a testimony. And in this case, it's a testimony of disobedience, of unfaithfulness, of unbelief. And in that moment, on the 10th occurrence, God's patience comes to an end. The final act of testing comes when the Lord brings Israel up to the brink of stepping into the promised land in Numbers 13. And they send in those spies, you remember, to go check out the land and give a report back to the people about what they'll find when they finally enter in over the Jordan River. And when the spies come back and give the report, there's actually two reports, as you probably know. One that gives a positive, optimistic confirmation of what God has said would be in the land. And another coming from the majority, that says exactly the opposite. And rather than believe the good report, the people of Israel rally behind the lies that are told by the spies who give the bad report. They don't believe God's promise that this will be a land flowing with milk and honey. They rather believe this is a place in which we will go in and die. They choose to believe those lies, lies that ultimately find their source in Satan, as all lies do. So in a very real sense, they sided with the father of lies instead of with the father of lights as James calls him. This was the moment when God said enough is enough. Let me read you a passage out of Numbers 14, the climactic moment when God says what he will do. 
Verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me? Despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst, I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them and will make you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, well, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For by your strength, you brought up this people from their midst and they will tell it to the inhabitants of the land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people for you, O Lord, are seen eye to eye while your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you slay this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, well, because the Lord could not bring this people into the land, which he promised them by oath. Therefore, he slaughtered them in the wilderness. But now I pray, let the power of the Lord be great, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving and iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generations. Well, pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. And so the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. But indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. And it goes on even from there. Clearly, the Lord is disgusted. With Israel's mistrust and their disobedience, this is the moment the psalmist was talking about in Psalm 95. And this is the moment that the writer in Hebrews now is thinking about as he begins to issue his second warning to the church. And you can see what concerned the writer from what we can see described in the details of Psalm 95. First, the psalmist says, if you hear the Lord's voice today, then respond in the right way. Do not harden your hearts in the deceitfulness of sin. The psalmist is speaking of what happened to the generation in Israel who saw the Lord in the desert. I want you to think about what their experiences entailed. Collectively, they heard the Lord's voice, right? They saw his wonders. They saw his miraculous works. They heard his voice as thunder. They saw the smoke. But friends, despite all of that, they saw all of these miraculous things, things that you and I might even ask, why can't I see those same things? Why can't I have a burning bush? They see all of that stuff. And nevertheless, they all rebelled. Most of them anyway. Most of them. They heard the Lord in a physical sense, but they did not hear him in a spiritual sense. Their hearts remained hardened. They were unreceptive to the word of God. They did not accept the promises of God. Remember, he promised them a land that would be filled with milk and honey. He promised that he would take care of them. They didn't accept the promise. They let their eyes be their determination for the truth. And they said, we don't see it. So it can't be true. Time and time again, they failed to demonstrate faith. Notice in verse 10, he says their hearts went astray, astray. As the psalmist points out, this generation saw incredible things. They shared incredible experiences, but those displays were unable by themselves to turn their hearts to God. Back in Psalms 95, that word astray is actually translated erred. They erred in their hearts. In Hebrew, the word is tahar, and what it literally means is they were deceived in their hearts. They were seduced. And of course, a seduction implies a seducer, and that seducer is the enemy. 
They were seduced by the enemy's lies. And then the Lord ends by saying, they do not know my ways. Friends, to not know the Lord's way means simply to lack saving knowledge of God. To not know him truly. Finally, in verse 10, he says, I was angry with them. In the psalm, it's even stronger. In Psalm 95, it says he loathed that generation. Friends, to loathe is such an interesting word. It's an intense feeling of disgust and rejection. God never expresses loathing for his children. He only loathes those who deny him. We see that confirmation in Numbers as well. In the the passage I read, Numbers 14, the very first verse I read, verse 11, God asks, how long will this generation not believe in me? He says it himself, all the facts in in Psalms 95, all the facts in Numbers 11 point to the same conclusion. We're forced to conclude that the generation of Israel that left Egypt, the men and the women, by and large, had never placed their faith and trust in the Lord who rescued them, but for a remnant, but for a minority, a very small number. They knew him in the fleshly sense. They had witnessed him in those great displays, but they lacked a true heart. They couldn't act in faith. When the times arose for such a response, for they lacked the faith that it required. They could only follow him in the superficial, fleshly sense that human beings are capable of apart from true faith. And friends, that's not following him at all. I mean, when the manna was falling, they're fine. When they're tired of it, they're no longer fine. When they're running free from Egypt, they're fine. When they see Egypt bearing down on them, they're no longer fine. When Moses is giving them what they want, they love him. When he's not, they don't. That's a fleshly response. That's not a spiritual response founded in faith. That generation that followed Moses followed him to gain something earthly. Whether that was freedom from slavery, whether that was rescue from an Egyptian army, whether it was to seek a pleasant home and a prosperous land, if it fed the flesh, they were all in. As soon as it required eyes to see with faith, though, they had nothing. They weren't attracted to the spiritual blessings. They acted disobedient in moments that required faith. And so the psalmist and the writer of Hebrews points to their bad example historically as a call to Christians not to repeat that mistake. And when I say Christian here, I'm speaking uh, in a very loose sense. He's talking to the church, to the assembled. Now, why was the writer thinking that this church was in jeopardy of following the same example that Israel showed in the desert? He must have had some reason, right? He must have some reason to think or to believe that some in this church were following Christ in the same way as the Israelites followed Moses in the desert. That is, in a fleshly sense only, without the requisite faith that's required to truly follow Christ. Just as the Israelites saw Moses as an earthly deliverer, as a man who was granting them escape from Egypt, as a man who promised them a nice earthly home, there are in the church, apparently, those who were following Christ in the same superficial way. A church that followed Christ because they hoped he would give them something earthly, some kind of benefit that didn't, either it was the association of other Christians which gave them community, or whether it was because someone promised them they'd have a happy life, or their best life now, or they'd be prosperous, or they'd be healed, but something earthly was the outcome they expected from their association with Christ. But friends, Moses was much more to Israel than merely an earthly deliverer. He was the intercessor under the law. He delivered a covenant that bound the nation to Israel. He offered blessings through obedience. And he is a forerunner of Christ in that respect. And likewise, Christ is not just another steward over some house. He's the actual builder 
that Moses was serving as well. And if therefore Christ is that much greater than Moses, then he is also worthy of that much more honor than Moses was worthy. And so the question stands, if Israel was condemned in the desert for a failure to show faith in following a lesser person, then what awaits the person who will not demonstrate faith to Christ? That's the question that the writer is raising. Now you see why he's put all of these issues on the table. Issues of Moses, issues of the wilderness, issues of Christ's superiority. And then lastly, issues of perseverance, of perseverance to the confession He's concerned that there are some in the early church that had joined themselves to the body of Christ in an illegitimate way. They were like those of whom Christ speaks of in the Gospels when he says that we must only enter through one door. In John 10, at three different points, John 10, uh, verse 1, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, is a thief and a robber. Verse 7, he says, Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And then later in verse nine, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and go out and find pasture. His point is men have long sought to reach God by their own means and to come over the wall, so to speak, to not come in through Christ is to come in in an illegitimate way, to be a thief and a robber, one who is not there with the right heart and therefore is not there at all. For you have to go in the door if you want to be one of the sheep. Only by trusting in the word of the Lord can we be saved. Some in this church, it, is, it appears, were making themselves a part of the group by affiliation, but not by a personal relationship with Christ. They had no relationship with the Lord, and in the future, they would be susceptible, as a result, to falling away. At the first hint of persecution, or of personal trial, or of storms in our life, those who are not truly Christ's, are very likely, if not guaranteed, to give up and to fall away, just as the Israelites did. They grumbled at Moses and at the Lord at the first hint of difficulty at any point in their journey leaving Egypt. And friends, in our congregations, perhaps not this one, perhaps so, who knows? There may be some who step back from their faith at the first sign of trouble. They show when they do that that they are not Christ's, because they fail to hold fast their assurance firm until the end. Friends, many false teachers and their megachurches in some cases are preaching happiness and prosperity. And that fills the room quickly, but it will just as quickly empty once persecution breaks out in the church and in our culture as it probably will one day, as the Bible says will happen one day. Because under trying circumstances, there'll no longer be a good reason for the posers to continue affiliating with the church because that affiliation was only valued so long as it brought the good things they expected. When those good things disappear, the affiliation no longer has any benefit. The sad and ever-present reality is that not all who participate with us in our congregations truly know the Lord. Not all have eyes to see, not all have ears to hear. And in these last days, the Bible says that the problem of false confessors will reach epidemic proportions. Paul calls it the great apostasy, that we will experience in the church a great falling away, which is itself proof of a great false confession community Within the larger body, Paul says in first Timothy four one, but the spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience 
as with a branding iron. The core of the problem is bad teaching. People who do not follow the Bible appropriately, people who do not preach the word, but preach instead deceitful doctrines of demons. But at the end of it, it collects a false crowd. And back in chapter two, the writer issued that first warning. Remember, we said there's five major warnings in this letter that define the letter, really. And the first of those major warnings was about those who would drift away after having heard the truth. And the writer used that that picture of a boat that's been untethered or is floating past a, a dock. And on that dock is the truth. And as you float past it, you come into contact with the truth and you consider it for a while and you look at it and you think about it. But you never stop moving. You never anchor yourself to it. You just drift on by. That first warning was don't pass by the truth. Pay closer attention to it. It's like the seed in Luke 8. The seed of the sower in the seed. Luke 8 has the four conditions. There's that one that's thrown on hard packed soil, sits there for a while, never penetrates. Eventually, the devil takes it away. That's the first warning in a nutshell. A little exposure to the truth, no grabbing hold of it. And after a while, you forget you ever heard it. The second warning is reaching past the issue of mere attention to the message. Now he's asking you to have heartfelt acceptance of the message. He's speaking to the one who has stuck around. They have given some attention to what they've heard, but they have yet to embrace the truth of it. They've joined themselves to the congregation, but in the wrong ways, for the wrong reasons. Without faith in Christ, they want something from that affiliation, like the Israelites wanted something in their escape from slavery and the like. They perceive an earthly benefit, but they haven't understood the spiritual significance. Now, look, to this group, This group of those who have hung around but never embraced, he gives the second warning. Look at Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 15 for the second warning. He says, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end, while it is said. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me. Now, the writer addresses his audience here as brethren, which is a word we use to describe those in the church, the Christians, which would cause some of us, I guess, to ask, could he be speaking to believers in this warning? And if so, then we would have to interpret everything that he says in both chapter three and in chapter four from the perspective of a believer falling away rather than an unbeliever. And certainly there is a form of unbelief that is possible for the Christian. That would be unbelief in the sense of living in disobedience to our faith in Christ, acting like an unbeliever, even though we know the truth. And that's certainly possible. But how do I know then that the writer isn't speaking to believers in that sense? Well, chiefly because the consequences for unbelief in this circumstance, in these two chapters, are consequences that are consistent with unbelievers and not with the promises given to believers. The consequences for a disobedient Christian are vastly different than the consequences for unbelief in the sense of a true unbeliever. And when we get into chapter four, I think you'll see with me clearly that the writer is concerned about a certain consequence that can only be said about an unbeliever. So we'll deal with this discussion more when we get there. Nevertheless, I don't want to pass by this thought without noting that in this letter, we're going to find messages to that other condition I just mentioned. He will eventually turn his attention to the believer who steps out in a life of disobedience in discord with their faith. For now, the second morning, I believe, is focused on the false confessor. Look at what he said in verse 12. The writer says that his readers 
should take note of anyone in their midst who has an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. The first thing to note is that those who have unbelieving hearts in this sense will reveal themselves eventually. If not in this life, certainly it will all be known in the end. But for the most part, it's expected that those with a false confession are going to fall away at some point in their life. Just as those who had unbelieving hearts in Israel eventually made themselves known through their disobedience, the truth is usually going to be revealed in times of testing, moments in which faith is required to take the next step. Since they don't have the faith, they won't take the step. It happened in the desert when there wasn't enough food or when there wasn't enough water or when enemies approached. For unbelievers in our midst, it will be probably things like persecution beginning. If you're a Christian and you're treated negatively, that becomes a disincentive to be a false confessor. Or personal trials. When a marriage is struggling, when a child gets sick or, God forbid, dies, or some other tragedy, a job loss, those will be the moments when the false confessor gives up on the Pollyannish hope that they've had in Christianity, one that's not founded in truth. And decides that the whole thing is a fraud and it didn't do me any good anyway. And now I'm just going to run off in self-pity. That's when they discover that Christianity does not bring you your best life now. That's actually a lie, by the way. That's not just optimistic. That's totally a lie. The more you are like Christ, the worse your life here will likely be based on persecution. But the more joyful you'll be because you'll understand where your hope really lies. You'll understand that the truth of the Bible is you'll have your best life in eternity. And so you're putting your, your trust there. You remember in the sower in the seed again, the second condition in which the seed falls in rocky soil, it doesn't have the depth to produce a root. So as soon as the sun comes out, it withers and dies. And in that parable, that that second condition pictures exactly this kind of person. There's a moment of bloom that outwardly appears to be the same exact reaction that every Christian has to the gospel. It's only in a time of testing that we finally understand, no, that person never had a root, never tapped into Christ, never really understood the gospel. They were a false confessor, or as I like to say, they're a poser. They posed as a Christian for a time. I want you to notice the unique construction of this particular warning. It's unique across all five. None of the other five look like this. The unbeliever in the group is the one we're concerned about. But notice who receives the call to action. It's not the unbeliever. It does not say to any one of you, make sure you don't have an unbelieving heart. The call of action is to the group, make sure none among you have an unbelieving heart. The writer asks believers to be the ones to act on this warning for the sake of those who might be among you who are not believers. He is calling on believers to help the one who is incomplete among their midst. And he doesn't call the unbeliever to fix his own heart because we know that's not how it works. No one raises themselves to new life, according to Scripture. Christ is the author and perfecter of our faith. But the Lord has chosen to deliver the message of salvation through the efforts of men who preach the gospel. And so it stands that he is asking this crowd to repeat that process. Preach the gospel. Share the word. So how is the church going to do what the writer said? That's verse 14. He says, encourage one another day after day. But to get a better sense of what he means by encouragement... You have to remember what he quotes again from the psalm. He says, today, as long as it is still called today. That's an important phrase. The word today in the psalm refers to a window of opportunity in each person's life in which we are able to respond to the call of the Lord. The psalmist calls for his readers to hear the voice of the Lord and respond in obedience today. In other words, respond without delay. 
Don't assume you'll get it tomorrow. So the encouragement he wants the church to undertake and repeat is the encouragement to know the Lord before your time runs out. We are to preach the gospel even in the church and to do so consistently, knowing that some among us may not have embraced that truth just yet. So we call upon them to believe while the opportunity remains. And we can encourage each other to know the Lord without necessarily going through the mechanics of offering an altar call. I think that's something that, for whatever reason, has become the mindset of the church in the last century or so. That if we say we want to preach the gospel, we say, well, the pastor needs to make an altar call. And that's not what he's talking about. The altar call is a relatively recent invention and not a particularly healthy one, in my opinion. The church before the 19th century didn't do altar calls. That's an invention of Charles Finney. What the church did is exactly what this writer is asking us to do. Encourage each other by doing what the Bible calls us to do. Principally, preaching the word consistently. But it also means putting Christ front and center in all that we do. Putting the gospel front and center. Reiterating that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And a lot of churches don't say that anymore. Never substitute another message. We don't come here for prosperity. We do not become a Christian so that we can get healed. We are not in for social justice. We are not about environmental justice. This is not about community in some generic sense or whatever else becomes vogue. We're not here because we have nothing better to do on a Sunday morning. It's about Christ and him crucified. It's the gospel. And we'll preach it a thousand different ways and we'll come to it as the word brings us to it. But that's what he means by encourage one another. As long as today is still called today, encourage why to know the Lord. To understand our salvation, to be rooted in him, to live in him, to rest in him. And in the end, faithful preaching of the word of Christ brings ears to hear and hearts to change. That's the testimony of scripture. By faith comes hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So at the very least, if we preach the gospel consistently, it strengthens believers in the faith because it reminds us of how we've been saved, why we've been saved, for whose glory we've been saved. But it's also there. For the one who amongst us is still waiting to know the truth so that they are never more than a week away from hearing it again, as long as they choose to be a part of us. So how do we know we are children of God? Well, the writer repeats his definition in verse 14. It's those who hold fast their assurance firm until the end. Now, you might be asking yourself, well, how do I know I'm going to do that? Well, let me ask you plainly. Is there a better option? If I told you that there was another way, would you believe me? Would you ever think that Christ is insufficient because of something that happens in your life? In other words, if your wife dies, if your husband dies, if your child dies, if you get fired, if you get cancer and you die, do those things shake your confidence in the gospel? Does it cause you to think there must be someone else you need to turn to for your salvation? If none of those things sound the least bit appealing, and I understand it's different to feel it than it is to talk about it, but if the core of who you are, if those things don't change your assurance and your confidence, then I'm willing to bet with you that you've understood the gospel. I don't feel any concerns in my heart. I'm sure those who know the Lord don't either. It's the opposite of what the Israelites demonstrated in the desert. Even the smallest inconvenience was enough for them to stand up and say, God's no longer good. Moses is no longer competent. The plan is no longer sound from just the smallest moment of inconvenience. That's what I mean. Does that enter into your heart? If not, then you know the Lord. True Christians hold their assurance to the end for as long as today is called 
today because we understand that the fulfillment of the promises we've received in Christ will not happen this side of heaven. And we're okay with that. We're like Abraham. We're wanderers in a land that is not our own and we're not put off by the weight. God is not slow about his promises, as some count slowness, but he is patient, wishing that none would perish, but all would come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we understand that. So we live within his timetable and patience comes naturally. I'm not saying you'll be patient about everything, but but you're not so impatient so as to think you need a new God, are you? When you encourage someone to persevere in the faith, you're reminding them of the goodness of God and of his faithfulness to his promises and the eternity of his timetable. By that encouragement, you reinforce their witness. By that encouragement, you give opportunity to please the Lord. Oh, by the way, if you're in the mindset of doing this routinely, encouraging one another as long as today is called today, if you do that routinely, you know what's going to happen? Sooner or later, somewhere along the way, you're going to encounter someone who doesn't know the Lord. You just won't necessarily be aware of that. Your friend, perhaps, your Christian neighbor, or so you thought was Christian, somebody that you took for granted was in the faith. And here you are sharing with them your encouraging words over the gospel, over the faithfulness of God, over the centrality of Christ. And lo and behold, you bring them to faith. That's what the writer's asking, because he knows we can't pick these people out. They don't walk around with a sign that says, I'm still unconvinced. Wouldn't that be easy, though? Right. We just put them all in one section and I'd only stare at that side of the room. That's something that came to me, you know, in my walk as a Christian, as I've developed in whatever God's shown me, I've come to understand that preaching the gospel is not about special moments that you select based on a person that you're talking to who you deem needing the gospel. I mean, those moments do happen. Certainly, you know, the Muslim that you meet in the store, pretty good bet he doesn't know the gospel. But those moments are fleeting. There are moments we need to be prepared for, absolutely, but they're fleeting. What does the rest of our day look like? The rest of our day is we encounter people all the time who we have no thought about where their heart stands before God. We may make assumptions, but we're never going to be sure. And if we steal ourselves up for these difficult conversations, get prepared, have them, and then, okay, I've done my part for the day, we're missing the idea of what it means to be a witness. Instead, see it as a continual conversation. All day long, speak the gospel to everyone at all times. And along the way, you're inevitably going to share it with an unbeliever. But it comes out in the way the writer of Hebrews has expressed it. Encourage one another as long as it's called today, as long as there's still a chance, as long as there's still time, whether in the church or at lying in the supermarket. Isn't God good today that he's done this for me and praise the Lord that Christ is in control because if it weren't for him, I would have no hope in this world. Things that should just spill out of you as an overflowing of the spirit and let God use that. That's what it means to preach the gospel as a witness in your everyday life. The writer says you may have some amongst you who don't know this truth. Encourage them every day. Let no one amongst us have an unbelieving evil heart that falls away from the living God. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father. Father, I pray that no one amongst us would have that heart, a heart that has fallen away, that knows only a superficial understanding of Christ. One that's trusting in itself or in some other man-made God. But, Father, I pray that you'd allow us all in our daily way, our daily words and our daily life to be an encouragement to one another, especially here on Sundays, to just reiterate what we know to be true about who you are and what you've done through Christ. And let that be our our light, Father, our witness. And then I pray that as you may choose to change hearts, you'll give us the opportunity to be the influence that gives a man or woman in here the knowledge of the truth that they perhaps did not have. 
And perhaps today that's happened, Father. Perhaps even in the words we've spoken so far, someone has heard something they never understood before, that Christ alone is our way to the Father, that it comes by grace alone, through faith alone, not by our works, so that no man may boast. And that a simple trust in Him is all that is required to be one with You forever. I pray, Father, somebody, perhaps even now, is hearing that for the first time. And if so, Father, we welcome them into Your family by faith. What a good day it would be, Father, with a baptism around the corner. Wouldn't it be just like You to time something that way? Lord, thank You for the Word and for the encouragement it gives, but also, Father, for the reminder that our witness needs to be every day. And all at time, at all times, let us have the courage to live that way, Father. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.